Welcome to We Belong Here, Lessons from Unconventional Paths to Tech. I'm your host, Lauren Lee. And who am I? I was your wacky 10th grade English teacher who would occasionally rap a Shakespearean soliloquy, would always encourage a live performance of a book report, and would occasionally dress up in costume as Professor Dumbledore to host an ethics debate, who then, after nearly a decade, decided to take the massive leap of faith to attend a coding boot camp, switch careers, and dive deep into the tech industry. I've been surprised by how many of the skills and lessons I learned as an educator have translated to my role in tech. So that got me thinking, have you taken a non-traditional route to tech? Or are you interested in transitioning yourself? This is a podcast that aims to interview career changers and folks who are diversifying tech. We'll hear stories from people who've taken unique paths and chat about the skills that they've transferred to their roles today. We're hoping to create a space for people to learn from one another, develop confidence, and debunk the antiquated notion that a computer science degree is required to succeed in tech. Come on, everyone. Let's dive in. My guest today is a full-stack developer at GenUI, which is a consulting firm that builds software that focuses on collaboration and quality. Before learning to code, she was a securities compliance officer, where she worked with representatives to ensure compliance with state and federal law. And before that, she was a professional French horn musician who traveled the world to share her gift of music with audiences and brass enthusiasts alike. She's passionate about expanding the tech community to include and retain those who may not have traditionally been welcomed within it. She works actively with supporting the nonprofit organization called Right Speak Code, who is on a mission to increase the visibility and leadership of women and non-binary coders through thought leadership, conference speaking, open source contributions, career development, personal growth, and self-care. She's a talented public speaker. In fact, she and I met just last year at a conference in Seattle in which we were both speaking at. Her name is Megan Slater, and I'm so excited to have her on the show. Thanks so much for being a guest, Megan. Thank you, Lauren. What a warm welcome. (laughs) Okay, let's start at the beginning, shall we? Uh, Can you tell me more about the experiences that you had before you entered the tech industry? Sure. Uh, Before I got to tech, I did all kinds of stuff. Uh, I started as a professional musician, uh, and that is, I I think, the kind of choice that you make when you're 18 and you're trying to figure out what you're going to do with your life. Uh, (laughs) I love being a musician. I love playing the French horn. My dad is a music teacher. Um, and I am from Montana. And the other part that was baked into that was, boy, you know what? You cannot be a professional French horn player in Montana. I was desperate to leave home. And so that provided me a good avenue to do exactly that, to get out. Um, so I studied at Indiana University. Indiana, I think, is the largest music conservatory in the world, uh, which you don't necessarily think of Indiana as being like a home of the arts. No, but they're like a big deal. It's a big deal. Yeah. yeah. Um, and I went and I studied in Vienna. And then I went to New York after I graduated. I studied in New York um, and I graduated in 07. So by 08, uh, no one had jobs. Musicians especially did not have jobs. Oh, the timing. The, oh. It was terrible timing. Um, so I needed to do something, and that is when I started at Merrill Lynch, which was also not a great place to be in 2008. No um, I saw a, an ad in the actual newspaper uh, for what Merrill Lynch called a client associate, and I thought, well, you know, like I, I'm 
I have a good technical mind. Finance is like techie, sort of. And um, I, it was a part-time job, which is exactly what I needed because I was still freelancing. And uh, I thought that would be less boring than some of the other sort of part-time gigs that one might find. So uh, I was working at Merrill. And over time, I just continued working in finance. I didn't know what else to do. Um, life as a professional musician is always hard. It was especially hard for my generation. Mm-hmm. Um, and I just wanted to like live my adult life. So I started working full-time in finance. I uh, started at a firm called KMS Financial Services here in Seattle as a receptionist. And then uh, they moved me into a, a number of different roles. I really learned the whole business. Uh, I wound up in compliance because I thought of what was available at that firm, compliance was probably the best fit for me. I still think that's true. Mm-hmm. Um, and I also noticed that they seemed to promote to the C-suite from compliance. So mm-hmm. I was just, you know, like making a nice little path for myself. Inside scoop. Yeah, yeah. smart. Yeah. So those are the things that I was doing before okay, now. Okay, absolutely. Interesting. Yeah. I love that you found that opportunity in the newspaper because I think listeners now, like, that feels like an antiquated thing. It but, is like, an antiquated I, thing. Well, yeah, for sure. Like, I, I found a job uh, selling Cutco knives in the newspaper. Like, yes. Yeah, like, just some wonky life experiences yes. that you get while searching through for, like, part-time work. Yeah, exactly. Uh, French horn, I gotta, I gotta know how you chose that as your instrument. Well, you know, I was 11, so it's not like there was a huge thought process there. <laughs> okay. Um, I'm a big fan, so <laughs> I was sitting at Arby's with my dad, and, um, you know, I grew up in Kalispell, Montana. It's not a big place. People kind of know who my dad is because he's the high school band director. Also and, a big deal. <laughs> oh, damn, very big deal. And uh, he, he says, well, Megan, do you want to be in the band? And I thought, oh, I get a choice. That's great. Yes, yes, of course I want to be in the band. Um, and he said, well, what do you want to play? And initially I was going to do the trombone, but then my brother played the trombone and my dad plays the trombone. Oh. That's, that's too much of that. So, uh, and then I was going to do the clarinet, but my friend Lily was going to play the clarinet. And so I chose the French horn because no, no one else was doing that. So then bringing us to a bit more current in time, how did you decide to leave the compliance work and decide to learn to code? And how exactly did you learn it? Yeah. Well, I was miserable. Boy, I, I mentioned before, of what was available at KMS, that was the best job for me. Okay. Absolutely. And I really liked the people I worked with at KMS. I am still in touch with them. I still drop by every now and again. Uh, They gave me a lot of opportunity. I so appreciate that. Uh, But at the end of the day, boy, finance is just the wrong job for me for so many reasons. And it does catch up with you. So I was miserable. And my boss came into my office, my nice, you know, big corner office with a view of the ferries. And I shared it with other people, but it was still great. And he said, well, you know, we think the CEO is going to retire. And at that time, uh, the expectation would be that kind of everybody moves up. And he thought that he would split his job between myself and one of my colleagues. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that's the time when you're supposed to be happy mm-hmm. <laughs> because you're getting, you're at the brass ring or whatever. Mm-hmm. That's the promotion. I would have been, I think, vice president of compliance. And I was not actually happy. I tried really hard. I tried for months to be happy mm-hmm. about that, but I was not. And so I 
went to a career counselor because I had no idea what to do. Oh. I mean, I had been in finance at that point for six years. That's a not insignificant investment of time and resources. I had spent God knows how many hours just cramming all this information into my brain. I don't have a formal educational background in it. And so it was a lot of work yeah. uh, to get my licenses, to understand what on earth was going on. It's a ton to, of content knowledge. It's a ton of content knowledge. And so, you know, it, it was a lot of effort and a lot of opportunity to just walk away from, even though I was pretty unhappy. And so I went to a career counselor and she had me take something called a strong assessment test. And it's like three or 400 questions about how much fun does it sound like it would be to do X? Like how do you think it would be fun to Mm -hmm. teach someone a math problem? Do you think it would be fun to learn how to swim? Like that kind of thing. Mm Uh, And then they take your answers and they compare them to other women who are happy and successful in their careers. Or if you were a dude, it'd be men, whatever. And my A number one first match came back as musician. And then my number two match came back as mathematician. And from there, it was just a a laundry list of STEM careers. Okay. Wow. Yeah. 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 Um, And I thought, oh, yeah, it was like really good at math in high school. I used to like win math competitions. I did a lot of math stuff. And I sure do like that. And I've got a a really good friend, also a musician, who is also an engineer and has been encouraging me to do this for years. So uh, I kind of took a a leap of faith. Mm. I went to Code Fellows. Uh, At the time, there were only a couple of boot camps in the city. um, And Code Fellows was the only one that had a back-end specific course. That's really what I thought I wanted to do was the back end, which was Python. Um, and it was at the time two one month night classes and one two month all the time class. And then I got a job almost immediately, ah. <laughs> which is not, not a common story by the way. Uh, but that was kind of my path to learn how to code. Gosh, that's so cool. I, yeah. I, I love using you as a example of you jumped right in, you learned to code and you got a job pretty quickly. Yeah. Uh, and it's really, it demonstrates about the industry and how it's growing and is dying to get, you know, new voices and opinions and perspectives in it. Sure. Yeah. And so bringing us then today into our current place, uh, can you tell me more about what you do now at Gen UI? Sure. So at GenUI, I essentially have three roles currently. Uh, I work as a consulting engineer. And so what that means is we have a, a number of clients who come to us to build custom software. And for a number of reasons, they don't want to do it themselves. Uh, so in this case, it's it's a big local tech company and they use us kind of like a little startup incubator. They tend to be small projects and prototypes, although we have certainly done commercial projects. Hmm. And my team currently has fluctuated between three and six people. We own the entire app. We own deployment, uh, which happens to be on Azure. We own building the web application, which is in React. We're also building an iOS and an Android application. And it's all the same product. So we are really stem to Stern, QA deployment, the app itself, we do all of that. That's so fun. Yeah. I mean, I think what we do is really fun. Um, it sounds really fun. Because how many people get to do greenfield projects right. at work? Almost yeah. no one. Yeah. So, you know, we build things from stem to stern. And I do do public speaking on behalf of GenUI, uh, mm-hmm. which is really just, we're pretty small, right? We have... 
35, 40 people, not a lot, in Seattle where there are all these huge companies. Mm -hmm. And so really for me doing public speaking, it's a good opportunity to talk about what I've learned, which Mm -hmm. is always a lot because we're building things from the ground a lot. You always have something new to talk about. Always have something new to talk about. And also uh, it lets people know like, hey, we've got this really cool shop here. We are always hiring. Hey, here we are. Yeah, 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 sure. That's important. Okay, Megan, could you talk to me about, uh, you know, what would you say kept you from entering the tech industry before you did? Sure. Uh, Well, my own stubbornness, that would definitely be one of them. Uh, I decided that I was going to go be a musician when I was like... 16, and you got to decide young. Boy, if you really want to do it, you really want to perform, you better decide young. Part of it, you know, as I mentioned, tied into that was a need to get out of Montana. I hope to never experience the kind of sexism that I did at home ever again. And teenage boys are terrible, Mm -hmm. and I think that's that's universally true. But uh, in Montana, I just, I put up with a lot, and I put up with a lot in math mm. in particular. I was a great math student. Yeah, you mentioned that. Yeah. 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 So what yeah, why not a career then? So then, why yeah, not a career yeah. then? Why did no exact one question. no one ever say to me, like, hey, uh you just placed in a statewide math competition. Did you ever think you should maybe be an engineer? Yeah, why not encourage that path for you? Yeah. Oh and part gosh. of it, you know, I come from a liberal arts family. Yeah. My dad's a band director. My mom's a speech and language pathologist. They're both teachers. I think if they had had the freedom to choose a career for me, they would have chosen for me to be a teacher. Mm-hmm. That's what families tend to do, mm-hmm. right? No one, no one in my family, even my extended family, does technical work except mm-hmm. for me. Uh, so I wouldn't have gotten it that way. Uh, it's not like Montana itself is full of engineers because those opportunities aren't there. Mm-hmm. Um, but certainly also, I'll never forget, I was taking physics like my junior year. And uh, usually I thought those classes were pretty boring because it was pretty easy for me. We didn't have advanced tracks. But I really liked that physics class. And I do really like physics in general. And I had a question. Tend to not ask questions in class for a number of reasons, but there was some math that he was trying to point out that I didn't understand, and so he, I, I asked, and he tried to explain it. It wasn't very good, so I kept asking because I actually wanted to try to understand. And this kid sitting next to me just shut it down. Why don't? Why doesn't she understand? It's always she, right? It's not. Why doesn't <sighs> Megan? Why doesn't this human being with yeah, a face yeah, and yeah. a name and a personality understand? But why doesn't she get it? And rather than doing the teacher thing, the appropriate thing and saying, hey, kid, calm down. It's just a question. The teacher just stopped and moved on. Oh, my God. And that's just one thing. But certainly as time went on and I was with those boys who were getting some encouragement in those classes, I remember thinking really specifically, like, why? Why would I spend my whole life with assholes like that making life, like, so much harder for myself than it needs to be? Because I, I do. I have a limited tolerance for people who, you know, treat me poorly due to things that are totally outside my control. And that was very much something that, that played into my reasoning at yeah. 15 and 16. Now, thank God, the rest of the world is not like Montana. Yeah, sure. Uh, yeah. I mean, yeah. Why sign up for that death of a million paper cuts, right? And face that every day. I'm smart and capable. Let me not have to also then deal with that. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, gosh. Well, I am so happy that you found your way to it now. Me too. Just having met your CEO a little bit ago while popping in to do this podcast. It was so cool to hear someone be like, yeah, we love having Megan's unique path and like her, her background she brings to the table. It was so cool to hear someone like genuinely believe in that and, and be so supportive. So that was really neat for me. But okay. So thinking about past as, you know, working as that compliance officer and also as the French horn musician, how does your past 
How has it helped you today in your role as a software engineer? Sure. So I think mostly back to my time in finance because okay. that was also a small company. Mm-hmm. Um, when I started at KMS, there were, I think, 35 people there. And we grew to 50 by the time I left. And I like small firms because you get a chance to kind of ride the chaos. There's mm-hmm. always chaos <laughs> because there's always more balls in the air than any one person can catch. Yep. And you just kind of do the best you can. And yeah. so I had the opportunity to wear a lot of hats there, it, very much in the same way I wear a lot of hats here. And one of them was working on the due diligence committee for alternative investments. Alternatives are basically expensive and complicated. So hedge funds are an alternative investment. And that would be one that most people are sort of have heard of that before. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. But 1031 tenants and common exchanges would be another one very popular until real estate busted. There's a real estate investment. Uh, when I was there, we were looking at real estate, non-traded real estate investment trusts also went bust in 08. Um mm-hmm. But we uh, still sold them from time to time as appropriate. So it took a lot of work to do due diligence on these things. They're very complicated. Would have an opportunity to talk with the folks who were selling them and try to get at more details or try to determine, is this a product that is acceptable for any of our clients to buy? Uh, Because if it wasn't, then we wouldn't move them on to the next step. Mm -hmm. And in the process of working on that committee, one of the other men on the committee, his name was Mark, a really smart guy. And he was like our head trader. He'd been at KMS for forever, 15 years. And I just knew him to be a very smart and capable person. And I really appreciated having him on that committee because he was also the guy who every time he did not understand something, he would be like, hey, you know, maybe this is obvious, but I just, uh, what about X? Or I'm not sure that I understand this one thing. Can you please explain it to me? Those probing questions. Yes. And he was never embarrassed that he didn't know. I never knew him to cover up when he didn't know something. He would Mm -hmm. just say, well, I don't know. And you need somebody like that in yeah. the room. And I think, you know, finance and tech in some ways are not so very different. It's a lot of men. It's a lot of ego. Yeah. And in engineering, we run into a similar problem. No one wants to be the person who says, I don't know. I don't know. Yeah. Right. And and even like, look, nobody knows all of it. Oh, my gosh. And not even senior engineers no, know impossible. all of it. Yeah. In um, this industry, it's impossible. No, no, there's too much. And that's another thing I appreciate about working at Gen UI is I've once again found this culture where if people don't know, they just say they don't know. Mm. And then we all try to go and find an answer together. My previous firm, uh, it, also in tech, was not like that. Everyone wanted to be the smartest person in the room. Mm. Uh, and you get talk and, so yeah. much less done that way. Yeah. So that was a really uh, great thing to bring with me to keep in mind. Someone has to be the person who says, I don't know. And and the other would be that working in compliance, I was working with a lot of lawyers. And people make terrible jokes about lawyers, right? Because they like to argue or whatever. But there is something to be said for working with people who know how to have a disagreement and not take it personally. A lot of engineers I've worked with they take it personally when you disagree. Mm, you are not your code concept. You are, you're like, not. Separate yourself from you're it. Not, you're just talking about ideas. Yeah. And, may, and lawyers will just talk about ideas whether they believe in them or not. Mm, interesting. Um, engineers tend to be very passionate, you know. Right. Like, there's. we all know that there's probably infinite ways to get to the solution. But, mm-hmm. like, sometimes we marry that one that we want to get 
ahead or to, to be the one we pick up. And so, yeah, that's it. Yeah. There's yeah. ego in that too. You're so right. There is. It, it's more like working with artists who are also very personally yeah. invested in the music yeah. they create, right? Ah, that's interesting. It's a create, this thing that we do, it is a, it's a creative endeavor. And of course you feel really engaged in the solution that you have or the thing that you built, but it is so valuable to be able to step back from that and argue ideas just as ideas and not as a, a part of your artistic creative output. Yeah, absolutely. It sounds like those skills that you are bringing with you that were kind of in your knapsack, you know, coming into this role in tech, would you say that those kind of differentiate you from your coworkers who maybe have gone a more traditional route to tech or, you know, have gone that computer science route the entire way? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, <laughs> and my last company, I was one of... We had a few people without CS degrees, but by and large, and it was a large engineering team. There were 50 of us. Almost everyone had a CS degree. Many mm-hmm. of them had CS degrees from like the quote unquote good schools, you know. The schools. The schools, yes. Yeah. Like the University of Washington. Like, great, cool. You went to the UW. Congratulations. <laughs> but, you know, when you're working with a whole team of people who have a very similar education, they also come up with very similar ideas about how to solve problems. Mm-hmm. Um, and that became problematic, in my opinion. I was perhaps alone in that opinion, which uh, is why I left. Hence Part of life. Life. Yes. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> sure, because having a, a degree in computer science doesn't actually mean that you solve problems well. It means that you've learned whatever they taught you in class. And one of the reasons I don't particularly love technical classes, although I am getting a CS degree now. Oh, you are? I am. Look at you. I am. It's going to take forever. I don't care. Good for you. Uh, and, and especially in taking those classes now, I can see now why mm-hmm. brand new CS degree havers uh, have such a difficult time doing real world problem solving. Mm-hmm. Because in the real world, problems are fairly infinite. You have to limit scope on your own terms. You have to come up with a way to solve it on your own terms. And in class, they're sort of forcing you down this very narrow, very gradable path. You're not solving a problem for the purposes of solving the problem. You're solving the problem for the purposes of indicating that you understand what a pointer is. Ah, oh, good point. Yeah. Yeah. That's interesting. And it's good. You understand what a pointer no, no, no. is, but that's not really what the work is like. Uh-uh. Yeah, that's not applied. No. Yeah. No. Huh. I'm sure your company is really grateful to have you then. I'm grateful to be here. Well, it's really cool to be getting the CS degree almost this route that you're doing it. And now with the knowledge from your company that you have and applied learning, yeah, it'll be almost a different perspective that you bring to it than just someone that's, um, you know, doing their four-year degree right out of high school or something like that. Yeah. You, yeah. Yeah. Really cool. Uh, Could you share any life lessons that you've learned from your transition to tech? Ooh, life lessons. Don't go where people won't appreciate you. (laughs) No, and I think listeners to this podcast will really appreciate that because I think that it's a really important part in searching for companies to find, like, you've got to find a place that's going to appreciate you and mm-hmm. recognize when they don't and walk away. Like, that is not going to be a safe space for you to learn. Yeah, I mean, you know, <laughs> you can you can do some stuff on your own. Everyone can. But the yeah. environment in which you happen to be operating makes a tremendous impact on what it is that you're actually able to do and, and mm-hmm. how you're able to pursue that. In my last company, they, they weren't like terrible, monstrous human beings. It wasn't like I had the worst time ever there. I didn't learn anything. There were a lot of very smart people, very passionate about their work. Um, I had the opportunity to like play around in a huge code base. Uh, and I learned a lot just from that. But while I did learn a lot at that company, I also had managers who had not been managers before. 
Uh, the importance of a good manager. Yes, yes. yes. Uh, and it turns out that managing is exactly like any other skill. It's something that you have to learn. You can, you know, like go and read a book. You can take classes. You can prepare yourself to be a manager. But it's a muscle you must exercise. It is a muscle you must exercise. And it is very distinct from software engineering. Your okay. top software engineer is almost never going to be your top manager. or And certainly they won't be both simultaneously. Yeah. And so when I got to this other company. And again, because I'd had good managers and I'd had experience, I mm. noticed immediately that uh, this poor sucker was in a role that he could not possibly execute well given the tool set that he had. I see. So you were able to recognize yes. that really quickly? Yes. Mm -hmm. okay. uh, and so I, I didn't depend on him much, actually. Mm. Uh, I found some other resources. And I also tried to help him a number of times you when we would sit up. down. Yeah, you got to manage up. I mean, everyone does. But, you know, if you have a good manager, then you don't have to do it as yeah, much. Yeah, that's the so. thing. Well, yeah, I was going to say. Do you? Like, do you? Yeah. I don't know. I, I, I always do. And so I tried to kind of help him out with various things. And he wasn't wholly unreceptive to that. But then after I had been there for maybe a little over a year, then I got another brand new manager who had never been a manager before. And I had just finished training the first one. And uh, wow. by then I was feeling increasingly insecure because I had been there long enough and had done enough that I felt that I should be getting some better assignments. And I wasn't. And mm -hmm. I couldn't figure out why. And I kept pushing on all the same buttons that have worked so very well for me in so many other careers. And it, it just wasn't getting anywhere. And then I got this new manager who probably better with people than the first one, but still very green. He said to me in one of our first one-on-ones that I needed to be more assertive. Mm. I don't know that anyone in my life has ever said these words to me. I was shocked. I just didn't even know what to say. Like, more assertive? Have we met? Have you met me? Yeah. Yeah, what's going on with that? And I can't remember. There was one other, like, very typically gendered criticism that he had for me. And I pushed back immediately. And then later... Oh, more independent. That was, um, yes, not independent. And so, you know, in a fit of peak, I went to the manager of another team and I said, I'm on your team now. Like, you don't think I'm independent. Look how independent I am. I don't even work for you anymore. You. Yeah. Of course, the correct thing to do, which I did ultimately do, was to leave the company. Yeah. I had done what I could do there. Sounds like it. And if yeah. I wanted to get further on, then I, I needed to go. And, it, you know, even though I am a fairly confident person, I am fairly independent, coming here and being given really as much rope as I can handle has been phenomenal in terms of mm -hmm. not just my, my professional growth, but just like I feel so much better. I am more confident uh, because I have a reason to be. That's so cool. Yeah. That's incredible. Can you tell me about a time in your life that you felt like an outsider and, you know, how you had to deal with those feelings or how you dealt with those feelings? Sure. Uh, I always feel like an outsider. And part of that is because my life has taken these strange twists and turns. I've just done a lot of stuff that most people haven't done. Uh, yeah. And so I, I think it's a great tool because that also means that I have some experiences that other people don't have. Uh, I think in tech, there's this very common vision of, for example, what a CEO should be and what the temperament of a CEO is. Yeah. And I know that's not true because I have worked with CEOs, plural, who are not narcissistic assholes <laughs> um, or who are able to 
listen and have a conversation and be calm and measured about the next direction that they're going to take or who are in fact quite detail oriented rather than being these like big vision producers who leave it to everyone else. You know, CEO actually is a role that can take a lot of different colors. Mm -hmm. And I think that it is important for people in tech to understand that. No, I completely agree. I think that that feeling ready and able to embrace that feeling is incredible and really, really important. Absolutely. Yeah. Tech needs a really good infusion of other people's viewpoints. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so what you're Coming bringing... More. Yes. Yes. <laughs> We're bringing the other viewpoints so that tech can, can get away from itself, which we, we desperately need to do. There are so many good stories and good tools that do come from other industries. Yeah. And, you know, we need to be able to take advantage of no, that. It's where innovation happens, right? Yes. Yeah, for sure. Okay. Do you have any advice for those wanting to transition into tech that you could share? Sure. Uh, So the first thing I'll say is that as you move into tech, you're going to get a lot of conflicting advice. Mm. Uh, It's deeply conflicting advice. And the the classic one of these is resumes. You know, some people will say, oh, your resume should never be more than one page. And Mm -hmm. some people will say, oh, a technical resume. You need to have all these keywords for all the computers that are reading your resume now. Or you should absolutely not include personal details like what you do in your free time versus no, no, that humanizes you. And it's, you know, going to help you to stand out amongst this huge stack of all these resumes that look the same. Yeah. Uh, And in my opinion, the reason why we get all of this different conflicting advice is because it's actually all true. Mm. It depends on where you're applying and what you're doing and and what your background is and and how it works out. So you're hearing a lot of different pieces of information because a lot of different things work for different people. So it's not like there is one true path for your career change. Uh, For me, when I'm hearing people tell their stories or if you're hearing people give advice, which is just a story about what they think would work for them and may or may not have anything to do with you. Uh, I think that it's important to think, well, these are all valid and which one do I like the best? Mm -hmm. Go with it. And follow your gut in that too. Yeah. You know what's best. Yeah. I love that. Okay. Megan, make your shout out. What would you like the listeners to go check out? Sure. So I'm always going to recommend Write Speak Code. Uh, Write Speak Code is a meetup in Seattle. It is also a national organization with a yearly conference. And we uh, are really hoping to empower uh, women and non-binary folks in tech to do things that make you more visible and also makes your resume way more awesome. Mm. Uh, so we're writing blog posts or certainly in the group there are some authors. We have uh, speaking engagements, which certainly I've done a lot of in the last year. And that can be as simple as just going to talk at a meetup, which is pretty low stakes, and then contributing to open source. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a great community. Uh, there are a lot of really friendly folks there who are interested in making sure that not only are we bringing new people into this industry, but we are also providing a path for those folks to succeed and grow once you're already here. Yeah. It feels like a really supportive community. Yes. I've attended a meetup to get help workshopping my CFPs for proposals for talks. And I I received such tangible help and feedback from attending it. It felt incredible. I got a a talk accepted like immediately after going to that workshop. So it it felt really cool to be a part of that. And I, I, I felt really grateful that it existed. I'm so happy that it's here in Seattle and cool that it's national also. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's great to hear. 
And Megan, where can people find you online? Sure. So you can find me anywhere as M.E. Slater 1030. You can find me on Twitter. You can find me on LinkedIn. Uh, I am not the most prolific tweeter. I am definitely an occasional tweeter. Uh, <laughs> but that is a good place to reach me. Awesome. Well, listeners, please go tell her how much you appreciated all of her advice that she shared with us today. Megan, thank you so much for being here. Thank you, Lauren. And that's a wrap on another episode of We Belong Here, Lessons from Unconventional Paths to Tech. Be sure to rate and subscribe anywhere you can find podcasts and check us out next week for another story and lessons learned from an unconventional path to tech.